Well, please turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, we're continuing to work our way through uh, the Pentateuch, and we're beginning to look at the Ten Commandments uh, this morning. And uh, as you turn there, just uh, again, would encourage you to uh, be a part of Try It Month and Week and things like that. We are going to encourage you to look at the, uh, the weekly as you, you should have received as you came in, just some information about different uh, Sunday school classes to try. If you haven't been a part of the Gospel Institute and want to uh, observe a class or two, encourage you to come out uh, tomorrow night for that. Or um, many other ministries encourage you to try out, think through, and uh, see how God would encourage you in your walk with Him. This, this year, excited about the different opportunities to grow as a church Excited uh, tomorrow, uh, Blake Gerber starts, and so we're delighted to have Blake and Kristen be a part of our staff, so be sure to welcome them as well. Well, Exodus chapter 20, we're beginning to look at the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at the first four this morning, uh, commandments that deal with our relationship with God, and then in a few weeks we'll look at uh, commandments that deal with our relationship with one another. But uh, this morning, we're going to look at those commandments that deal with our more particularly with our relationship with God, and, but we're going to read the whole, the whole section here. So if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, beginning here in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Father, we do ask for your grace in helping us to be obedient to these things, to helping us to live rightly before you, but Lord, we want to love you. We want our love for you to, to change us and to flow into all other areas of our lives. Be gracious to us this morning. Help us in that endeavor. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Economics is the study of of wealth or how different goods are produced and 
distributed, how they are valued. Economics is also a, a magic word that if you say it, you can instantly lose half of your audience. So I want to use it very carefully. There's all different types of studies of economics. There's behavioral economics. Uh, there's political economics, macro, microeconomics, home economics, lots of different economics. Uh, there's one study of economics that uh, I have not encountered yet, but I, I, I want to talk a little bit about it this morning, kind of this theoretical branch of economics that I would call worship economics. Worship economics. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever used that term, that phrase before, but if, if they did, um, I haven't heard it, but good job on them. Uh, but here, if, if there were worship economics, there'd be a couple of foundational truths that I think would help us understand worship economics. One truth would be this. You can measure the value of something by what you would sacrifice in order to obtain it. And that's a phrase adapted from famous worship economist John Piper, right? But you can measure the value of something by what you would sacrifice or give up in order to obtain it. So, for example, if I was eating a slice of large pepperoni pizza and someone offered me a $100 bill, I would gladly give them my pizza for that $100. That $100 would have more value to me than that slice of pizza. Although if I was starving and my life depended upon a meal, I would gladly give up $100 because for a meal because my life is more valuable than $100. You see how that first principle of worship economics works, you, you give up something, and what you give up in order to obtain something else reveals what you value. It kind of reveals your value structure. Another foundational principle of worship economics would be that you measure what a person values, not just in a snapshot, not just in a moment, but over the course of, of time. So, for example, you might observe that in a moment I didn't value my wife the way that I needed to. Maybe I, I was not listening very carefully to her and was checking my email or something on my phone. And that, in that moment, that would be a very poor economic decision on my part, uh, a very foolish one. But over time, hopefully, if you looked at my life, what you'd see is, wow, Daniel really values his relationship with Whitney. There's very few things that he would value more than that. That's another principle of worship economics. You gain perspective on what a person values over a period of time, not just in a moment. And then a, a third and maybe the most foundational principle would be that which a person values most is what they truly worship. In other words, that thing that they would sacrifice anything to obtain is what that person truly worships. And the thing I like about this little thought experiment of worship economics is it forces us to think very carefully about what we truly value. In other words, I can't just say, here's a, a list of things that I do, and therefore because I do, do these three things, I, I must love God. No, worship economics forces us to think about love, not legalism. It causes us to really think through carefully, do I love God, and is my love for God manifested in the things that I'm willing to sacrifice in order to obtain Him? Does my life reflect the value that I say that I place upon God? 
God is very concerned not with our ability to follow lists, but our ability to be in love with him. God is very concerned, we see throughout Scripture, that our worship reflect his value. So, for example, when you come to Malachi chapter 1, I believe this is one of the most powerful passages that helps us think through the economics of worship. In Malachi chapter 1, God is saying, look, um, you're not worshiping me rightly, and the people are, are pretending to be kind of surprised. Maybe they are surprised. They say, what do you mean? And the priests are saying, what do you mean you don't like our worship? And God says, look, you're, you're offering polluted food. The priests say, what, what polluted food? What are you talking about? And God says, look, when you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? You wouldn't present those to your governor, God says. But listen to what God says in Malachi chapter 1, a few verses later. He says, I wish there were one among you that would shut the doors. In other words, he says, I wish someone would just shut the doors of the temple rather than offering these, these worthless sacrifices. He says, I wish someone would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you. I will not accept an offering from your hand. And then he says in verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. My name's going to be great, God says. I'm a great king, he says in verse 14. My name will be feared among the nations. What is God concerned about there? God doesn't want someone to come to him and say, look, I've done these four or five things, therefore you and I are good. He wants a person to come to him and rightly recognize his value. And as a person rightly recognizes God's value, they're going to respond in worship. And worship means valuing nothing more than that, that object or that person that you're worshiping. Here, in the context of worshiping God, it means coming to God and saying, God, this is the worth of your name. There is nothing in my life that is more valuable than who you are. And so there is nothing that I would not forsake in order to obtain you. That's worship. That's what God desires. And so we come to the Ten Commandments. And what do we understand as we come to the Ten Commandments? We see in the Ten Commandments instructions that help us understand what it truly means to love God and love our neighbor. This section of Exodus that we're in is called the Book of the Covenant. It's what Moses refers to it later in the book of Exodus. We're at chapter 20 through chapter 23. That's the book of the covenant. And the book of the covenant is really foundational to the rest of the Pentateuch. A lot of the rest of the Pentateuch is based upon this covenant that God makes with his people as they come to the end of the book of the covenant. And the book of the covenant begins with these, what Moses calls 10 words later, or what we call the 10 commandments. And there's kind of some different understandings of the right uh, order of the Ten Commandments, or what is commandment number one, number two. We're going to, as we study this, talk about the Ten Commandments kind of as we've traditionally understood them as as Protestants, and I think that's the right order. We're not going to go into all that. Just know that that's kind of the order that we're going through these Ten Commandments. And as we as, as believers go through the Ten Commandments, we remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, as we looked at that earlier this morning, as we participated in the Lord's Supper, that all the law and the prophets, all of the commandments can really be boiled down to two 
great commandments. And the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second commandment is to love our neighbors ourselves. And these first four commandments really focus on that first great commandment, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. They help us understand as, as New Testament Christians, as New Covenant believers, part of the community of faith, we come to these first four commandments and it helps us understand some things about what it means to love God. In fact, here's, here's what I want us to do this week and the next week we look at the Ten Commandments. I want us to understand big picture that the Ten Commandments help those of us who are under the law of Christ gain an understanding of what it looks like to love God and love our neighbors. And as we look at the first four Ten Commandments this morning, what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to see what it means and talk through what it means to love God wholly and uniquely. What does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to value him above all else? What does it mean to love God wholly and uniquely? It's a person who's encountered God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to try to talk through this morning. We'll look at the first four commandments and kind of look at the commandment. Say, okay, what is it saying? How does it apply to us? And then how do we, how do we see the gospel in this? What's, what's the commandment? What's the essence of what it's saying? And how does it apply to us? So here's the first commandment. First commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. We see this in verse 3. Now, what is, what is God saying here? Sometimes people have read the first commandment and they've been a little bit confused. They say, okay, hold on. Uh, what does it mean, no other gods before me? Is, is God saying, look, I know there's a bunch of gods out there and uh, I just want to be number one. Kind of like, I know there's a lot of baseball teams out there, but I, you know, I want to be your favorite baseball team because I'm kind of the best. And so no other gods before me means I'm kind of preeminent. Or maybe we think about friendships. It's okay to have a lot of different friends. I just kind of want to be your best friend. Is that what God is saying? No, absolutely not. Remember, as we go back to the first Jew, Abraham, he was called out of a culture that worshipped multiple gods. He was called out of that and called to worship one God. And now, hundreds of years later, the people of Israel have been in Egypt, also a culture that worships multiple gods. And they're going to go into Canaan, that is full of people who worship a, a pantheon of gods. And as they go into Canaan, there are going to be different regional deities, there are going to be different deities who are in charge of, of different things. You know, there's going to be a, a god who's in charge of of crops and a God who's in charge of fertility, and there's going to be a God who's in charge of this region, a God who's in charge of that region. There's going to be uh, a God who's in charge of the, you know, different gods in charge of different weather elements. And God is saying, okay, uh, you need to understand that I am not a God who exists in a pantheon. I'm not one of many God who operates in cooperation with other gods. That word gods is the Hebrew word Elohim, and it can refer to supernatural spiritual beings. And God's maybe acknowledging here, yeah, there are, there are, there are other angelic spiritual beings, but there is, there is no God within whom I am in competition. 
There's no other God that can compare with me. I don't operate in cooperation or against other deities. I admit I am your sole source of authority. There is no God who can compare or be contrasted with me. I'm it. There are no other gods with whom you can be in relationship with. There are no other gods who can exercise authority over you. I'm unique. What's the essence of the command here? What's the the essence of what God is saying? I believe the essence of what God is saying is don't give your heart to anyone or anything else. Shared worship is no worship. There's no other God with whom I'm going to compete. To, To be my people means to worship me and only me. It's why Jesus, talking about this in Mark chapter 12, quotes the, the Shema, you know, the Lord of God is one. There's no other God. He's it. That's the essence of what God is saying here. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? What it means is that I believe that God sovereignly places you and I in circumstances where we have to make some evaluation determinations. Worship economics forces us to make some decisions. Now, for the people of Israel, you know, they're here and they're surrounded by a culture that says there's many gods, and God says, no, 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 there's one God who has authority over your life. There's not many, there's one. You can't say, okay, I'm going to follow this God for this issue, and sometimes when I'm in this region, I'm going to follow this God. No, there's, there's not many gods that you're subject to. There's, there's one. It's me. Now, what's the problem you and I face? We live in a culture that says there's not one God, there's zero. We don't have any source of authority over us except we ourselves is what our culture tells us. There's no God to whom you answer. The only person you answer to is yourself. And our ultimate determination of whether or not something is moral or immoral, good or bad, is how we ourselves feel about it. And no one else has the right, including some imaginary deity, has the right to tell you any differently. What's the essence of the command? There's one God who has authority, and he doesn't share his authority with anyone else, including us. I believe, again, God places us in circumstances where he sovereignly sovereignly causes us to make choices, to help us understand what we're going to value. He places us in a circumstance where he says, okay, are you going to value your reputation or are you going to value me? And we have to choose him if we hold him as our one God. He places us in a situation where he says, okay, are you going to value this friendship or are you going to value me as you speak truth in this friendship? Are you going to value the materialistic pleasures of life or are you going to value me? God sovereignly over and over again places us in those situations. I'm sure uh, all of you are as excited as I am about the Dallas Cowboys playing this afternoon. I'm sure a lot of big Cowboy fans here in central Illinois. Uh, no, I, 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 I'm a uh, you know, Dallas transplant, so I have an affection for them. But um, I think we all would acknowledge that people that we often, for lack of a better term, idolize in the sports world have made some very terrible decisions in terms of 
of what they're going to worship. One famous uh, coach of the Dallas Cowboys, not Tom Landry, another uh, coach of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, whenever he became the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, the next day took his wife out to dinner and, and told her, he said, look, I, I can't be your husband and a coach of the Dallas Cowboys, and I, I choose football. I choose them. Why? He said, I'm comparing values, and, and this is what I'm going to value instead of you. God sovereignly places us in situations which we're going to be forced to decide, do we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength? Do we believe that there aren't multiple gods, there aren't zero gods, there's one God, Yahweh? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord and we can come to faith through believing in him. Here's a second command. Here's a second command. You shall not make for yourself an idol. He says, don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Don't bow down to them or serve them. I'm the Lord, I'm, I'm the Lord your God, a jealous God. He talks about how he visits the sin of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation. He's saying, look, you can't just say, um, mom and dad taught me to, to, to do this, to worship these idols, and so that's what I'm doing. He says, no, every, every generation is accountable before me. And yet, he's also gracious. He, he visits his, his steadfast love on, on the generations of, of thousands, those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, now what's, what's the command here? In the ancient Near East, the culture in which Moses and the Israelites exist, there was a belief that a deity could, could initiate the idol-making process. There'd be this, this moment of inspiration, and, and this idol would, would begin to be fashioned, and there was a belief that that the deity was kind of controlling the, the fashioning of this image. And then throughout that process of, of inspiration through which that idol would be fashioned and it would be fashioned according to whatever it is that God did. And, and then there was this ceremony, this initiation ritual in which the God would, would enter into that idol. And there was a belief now that as you had that, that physical object, you had the, the God himself or herself. And, and now that image, that that idol was incorporated into all the aspects of worship around that deity. There was this physical object in, in which, you could, which you could worship and could incorporate into all the things you did. Now, why was that so appealing? There's a, a scholar named Douglas Stewart who, who talks about the attraction of idolatry. He says it was, it was attractive because it was guaranteed. You had this idol now who had to listen to you. It's right there. It can't help but hear you. It was attractive because it was selfish. You could control this God. You know, Solomon and Isaiah are going to acknowledge the futility of idol worship. They're going to say, look, this temple can't contain God. There's nothing that contain, could contain God. And there's a belief in the idol worship process that there's this object that can contain God. And so it's, it's, it's selfish. You have the ability to, to, to handle this God and have the God do what you want it to do. It was easy now, it was easy, not in the sense that it never cost you anything. Sometimes it could, an idol worship could enact great cost, but it wasn't an infinite cost. In other words, you could set the cost yourself, and you could make it as high as you wanted, but still it was, it was easy in the sense that it wasn't limitless. But worship of Yahweh was going to be different. God wasn't some God that said, okay, your worship of me goes from here to here. Worship of Yahweh was infinite because God's value was infinite. There was no element of life which we could say, God, hands off. It was convenient. 
There's always a God around. It was normal. Everyone practiced idolatry. It was ubiquitous in the culture. You couldn't come into a region and say, hey, um, I'm looking for the one God. There wasn't one God. There were multiple gods everywhere. As the Israelites were going to go into Canaan, and they were going to talk to their Canaanite neighbors, and they would say, okay, how do we, how do, we do crops? The Canaanite neighbors would have said, okay, and they wouldn't even have thought about it. They would say, okay, here's the first thing you're going to do. Here's the God who's in charge of the crops in this area, and here's how you begin to worship. They wouldn't even thought that there was something off about that. No one, everybody thought that way. It was normal. It was logical. It made sense to them. It was pleasing to the senses. It was indulgent. They could engage in all sorts of debauchery while engaging in this worship. Now, that's idol worship. What's that's what God is saying. Don't do that. Don't create an image. Don't participate in that. And what's the essence of the command? What's, what's the essence of the command? I, I believe it's this. Don't call something God that isn't God. Don't say this is God if it's not God. Don't engage in worship of God and say, well, I'm worshiping God. If God says, that's not how you worship me. This falsely describes who God is. And God is telling his people, you have to seek to know me rightly. You must worship me as I've called you to worship. Now, how do you and I obey this? How do we disobey this? We practice idolatry when we don't care to find out who God really is. When we neglect understanding God's word, when we neglect thinking deeply about doctrine and theology and what God says about himself, we risk engaging in idolatry. We engage in idolatry when we engage in worship that is different than how he prescribed worship to be. God says, okay, this is how you proclaim my word. We talked about this on Monday night in our uh, Communicating Biblical Truth class. If I come up here and say, you know what, I know 2 Timothy 4 says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, I'm going to try something different. What is that? That's idolatry. That's saying I'm going to worship God differently than how he's called me to. When I come in here and I I don't care about what the lyrics are as, as I'm singing the song, I'm just kind of saying some things, that's potentially idolatry. I don't think about how God has called me to worship him in psalms and, and uh, songs and spiritual songs, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to just kind of say some stuff, not even thinking about how I should be engaged in worship, that's potentially idolatry. What does God say about himself and how we approach him and who he is? If we don't care, there's real danger of idolatry. The hope here is the gracious lavishness of God to those who want to love him and worship him. He talks about how children are accountable for their own relationship with God, but there's also, I think, a, a great hope here to parents in verse 6. There's their steadfast love, his chesed, covenant love to the thousands, and, I, and the hope I take from that is, as a parent, if I, if I come to God's word and say, God, I want to know you, and this is the same thing we see in Deuteronomy later, I want to know you, and then as I know you, I want to teach to my children, God gives us hope that as we worship him and value him rightly, our, our children are going to cling to that and worship him as well. We'll talk more about that as we get to Deuteronomy, but, the, but there's hope there is what I'm saying. There's hope. 
Here's the third commandment. I want us to think about, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, he says in verse 7, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, now what does that mean? What does it mean to take the name of, the, of God in vain? Remember as we've been going through the Pentateuch, how often naming something comes up. When Adam names the animals, what does it what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates that he has authority, and so he, he names something. And we also see as we go through the Pentateuch that naming something or, or identifying oneself tells something about ourselves. So God reveals his name to, to Moses, and he's telling Moses something about him. So I am is what God is telling Moses. Whenever God renames Jacob Israel, he's telling something to Israel about who he is and about how God is going to relate to him now. There's, when you name something, you, in, you indicate authority over it. You indicate something about its identity. And God's people are to be his name bearers. They're to be the people who, who have God's name upon them. They're his people. And there's, well, there's so much I could say about this. Um, but just think about other places in scriptures you see how God reacts to his people. like He forgives them because they bear his name. He punishes them because they bear his name. What God is saying to his people here is, look, um, as you blaspheme my name, what you're doing is you're using my name and invoking my holiness and the relationship you have with me, you're invoking that to do something that's different from, whom I, from who I am. You're, you're misidentifying who I am. You're saying something wrong about me by your actions. You bear my name. You're supposed to reflect my holiness, and you're not doing that. The essence of the command is to falsely attach God's name to anything that is contrary to his character. To blaspheme God's name is to attach God's name to anything that's contrary to his character. Now, how can you and I potentially be guilty of that? Well, a couple of ways. One, we can claim to be Christian and Christians and, and not be, right? So I'm, I'm a child of God, and, and yet we aren't. That's, that's blasphemy. It's taking the name of the Lord of God, our God in vain. We can use God's name flippantly and, and casually, saying, saying, oh, this, that, and kind of using his name kind of this, as this casual oath. And what's happening as we do that? We're saying, you know what? God isn't all that holy. He's not that much to be feared. We're attaching God's name to something that's not consistent with who God is. Or we can blaspheme God's name as we say God said something or did something that he didn't do. And, and I would encourage you to be really, really careful about this. I had a friend a few years ago that was preaching, and in his sermon he said, now God has really laid it on my heart, or God is, um, God is." T- I think he even used the word, you know, God told me to say this, and then he said something. I came to him later, I'm like, hey, help me understand that. Did you just get some really cool special revelation in the pulpit? I mean, what, what prompted you to say that? And he goes, yeah, as soon as I said it, I realized I should not have said it that way. And I would agree with that. It's a very serious thing to speak on God's behalf. I'd use that expression, God says something, really carefully. I'd be really sure that he was saying it, right? We can also blaspheme God's name. We can take his name in vain. When we say that God wants us to do something that's against what God says to do, 
well, I, I really think God wants me to do uh, this in this relationship whenever we know that's exactly what God doesn't want us to do or should know that. Or we can take God's name in vain whenever we think God is okay with something that he's not okay with. Yeah, I, I know that God wants me to be careful and work, but God really wants me to have this promotion. God, I think God really wants me to, to have these material things. I'm, I'm really confident that God wants this and God wants that. And you know what? You're taking God's name in vain. We need to be very careful that our lives are lived in right reflection of who God is and his character and his attributes and his being. The beautiful thing of the gospel is we are not worthy to God. To, to, we are not worthy to bear God's name, but he makes us worthy through the righteousness that's in his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, last commandment uh, for this morning, and, and um, fortunately, I'm running out of time because it's a big one, pretty controversial. Uh, the fourth commandment, re- remember the Sabbath day to, to keep it holy. Now, what, what is God telling his people here? What he's telling them is that the seventh day is to be set aside as a, as a special day. And the interesting thing for me is that he grounds it even back in creation. So there's, some, there's this command that, that begins in, we see some, something that begins in creation, and, and now it's applied to the people under the Mosaic covenant. And the application of this, this Sabbath day, this Sabbath rest, the application for the Mosaic people is, hey, don't work on this day. In, in certain ways, you can instead focus on worship. Now, they could engage in weddings. They could do uh, military campaigns. They could engage in you know, priestly worship and work. But this type of labor refrain from. Now, as we come to the New Testament, I think we understand more about the essence of the command. So, begins in creation. God rests on the seventh day. We, but then as we come to Mosaic Law, he says, okay, here's how I want it to be expressed. Now, what he's calling his people to do on that day of rest is to trust in God, to trust in God, and then to enjoy and delight in the rest that he provides. So the command, the essence of the command here is trust in me to provide for you, and then enjoy and delight in the rest that I provide. As we come to the New Testament, we see that this, is, this, this expression, the fourth command, is, is really pointing to Jesus. He says, uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, he says, look, don't pass judgment on each other about food, drink, what you're going to do on this day or that day or, or the Sabbath, he says in Colossians 2.16. So whatever conviction you come to about how you're going to be obedient to this instruction in your life, I shouldn't judge you, you shouldn't judge me. As long as we're doing it to glorify God. He says, then in verse 17 of Colossians 2, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 kind of gives us the same idea, talking about how the Sabbath was a picture of God's eternal rest. And when people disobeyed God through lack of faith, manifested by disobedience, they didn't get to enter his rest. And he gives example after example of people who didn't experience God's rest. And then he comes and says, uh, don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts. And it says there remains, verses Hebrews 4, 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered into God's rest, or it says for whoever has entered into, for whoever has entered God's rest 
has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, so much to say about this, but again, the essence of the command, I believe, for you and I is we trust in God. We rest upon him, and as we trust in God, we think of the future rest to which the Sabbath points. We're not in the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic instructions for the Sabbath, I believe, are no longer binding. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and so everything we do on the Sabbath or any other day, whatever you want to call Sabbath, Saturday or Sunday, whatever day it is, we, all, we do it all under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we understand the Sabbath points to the rest that we have in Christ now and in the future. We fulfill the Sabbath command as we devote ourselves to God, trusting in him and delighting in him. Now, what does that look like on a Sunday? My encouragement to people would be, it means devoting yourself to God and and trusting in him. Every day of the week. I believe there is a special ability we have to do that on, on Sundays. Now, I would not be legalistic in how I approach this, certainly. My family, a few weeks ago, I, t- I said, you know what, I'm going to take about 20 minutes, and I, there's some work I need to get done, and so I'm going to take about 20 minutes here and just try to get some things prepared, or I'm not going to be ready on Monday morning when I wake up. And i got a lot to do Monday morning. Now, I said that to my family, and about two hours later, I look around, and I think, what have I just done to my family? I'm still working on this project, and Whitney has decided to take that time to work with the kids, and the kids are stressed, I'm stressed, and I realize, you know what, I wasn't trusting God in this. I'm relying upon myself, I'm not trusting God, I'm not resting in Him. But it's going to look different for each person, but the essence is this, I'm going to trust in the Lord and delight in Him, not in my own works. The Sabbath is a picture of that. The Ten Commandments, all of this this morning, Think about the Ten Commandments. For those of us who are under the law of Christ, they teach us how to love God and love each other. These first four commandments help us understand, for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing that he is the one true God, for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the first four Ten Commandments help us understand what it means to be wholly, fully committed to him. Father, we trust in you. We recognize your great grace in our lives, and we trust in you alone for our salvation. Give us your grace. We pray this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.